0: Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations.
1: From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory. Today, we have something a little different on Backstory one of our own co-hosts, Ed Ayers, is going to tell us about a project that he's been working on for, uh, well, you better say the number, Ed. Go ahead and say it, Brian. 25 years. 25 years. We're talking about Ed's two-book series on the American Civil War and Reconstruction. The first volume, In the Presence of Mine Enemies, came out in 2003, and it won the Bancroft Prize. It opened with John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry in 1859, and it ended just before the Battle of Gettysburg in 1863. Ed's just published the second volume in that series, The Thin Light of Freedom, The Civil War and Emancipation in the Heart of America. He picks up the story in 1863 and continues through 1870 and the 15th Amendment. Hey, Ed, this feels very weird, but... Welcome to Backstory. Thanks so much, Brian. I'm glad to be here. More ways than one. Good. Now, I don't have to tell you that the Civil War has been in the news a lot lately, but your scholarship began long before the controversy over Confederate monuments. What got you interested in the Civil War in the first place? So I first
0: thought of this project in 1991, and the question was, how could Americans grow to hate each other enough in a few months to kill each other? You know, frankly, it was partly inspired by the first Iraq War, uh, and we saw how quickly it is that people could learn to hate people they didn't yeah. know. And I was driving through the Shenandoah Valley, and one of the most beautiful places in America, and I saw a sign for the Battle of New Market. And all of a sudden, it occurred to me on this beautiful landscape there had been a devastating war, and the 23rd Psalm, though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, sprang my mind. So I had that on the very beginning. And then I decided, well, how would I convey that sense of how Americans could grow to hate each other enough? It wasn't something that the presidents and the generals did. These were people on the ground who had to do. So that's a short answer. But what's the longer answer? So everybody comes from somewhere. Nobody goes into the Civil War just as a category. They go from a community. So I decided I would choose two communities in the Shenandoah Valley, one in Pennsylvania, Franklin County, where Chambersburg is, then just 200 miles away to the south, Augusta County, Virginia, where Stanton is. Now, I chose these places with a diabolical purpose in mind. Uh, I happen to know that the men from those two places ended up fighting in all the major battles of the East. But I also could discover that both of them had two newspapers all the way through the war, uh-huh. and so that you'd be getting a dialogue between people of differing views every week. Wow! And then I just lucked out and discovered this was the place where Frederick Douglass met John Brown before <laughs> Harper's Ferry. I discovered the largest single collection of letters from African American soldiers from one family. I discovered a diary from a guy who had been a newspaper editor and wrote down everything with this great honesty every day. And the whole
1: project is not just about the Civil War, but it's about the fate of slavery. Ed, you make a very provocative argument, if I understand it correctly. You basically argue that it was Southerners who brought on the destruction of slavery and who brought on that 14th and 15th Amendment.
0: Yeah, well, you did read the book correctly, Brian. That is what I say. And here's the point. There is no way that this vast system of slavery for 4 million people, which has been in place for 250 years, is going to end in four years unless white Southern slaveholders free themselves from the protections of the United States Constitution, which grants the right of slavery where it exists. And Abraham Lincoln... And the Republicans acknowledge that. Lincoln says that our goal is to stop the expansion of slavery so that it will turn in upon itself and in about five generations it will be gone. And so that's the reason Republicans couldn't believe that the white South would secede. There's no threat to anything they have concretely. It's the prospect of expansion into the West. The entire foundation of the Republican Party is to say slavery will not expand beyond its present bounds. But by... Seceding over the prospective right to expand slavery, they did the only thing that could have imperiled the existence of it where it already stood because they left the United States. Once they are in rebellion against the United States, it takes a while, but then the White North, under Lincoln's leadership, says the only way to break this rebellion is to end the slavery that sustains it. Plus, we have seen with our own eyes that the people in slavery want and deserve freedom. So the purposes of the war expand. So the white South is not the only player in the creation of black freedom. Within three weeks of Virginia secession, black men go to the United States Army and say, we're on your side. <laughs> and they begin eroding slavery where it exists. But the fact is, is that as one Republican newspaper puts it, the South committed the colossal suicide of world history. The slave South basically gave away this titanic power that it had by overreacting, by forcing the hand of Lincoln and forcing the hand of the North. And as a result, slavery came to an end. And
1: ironically, as you put it, a power that had been embedded in the Union. Yeah, exactly. In the Union itself. And so that's one reason that even today you'll hear people
0: Say, well, the Civil War wasn't really about slavery because the North didn't go to war to end slavery, which is true, right? But it is certainly the case that the white South did go to war to protect slavery. So here's the thing. At the beginning of the war, they want to restore the Union with slavery still in it. Right. But—and this is the case where the white South plays the next critical role. If they had not fought for so long and so successfully— If they had lost earlier in the war, the United States would not have had the time to have turned the war into a full-fledged assault on slavery. So the White South plays its role in that, too.
1: This book begins in 1863, a little bit before Gettysburg. Could you set the scene for us in each of the communities that you're focused on?
0: Yeah, Brian, that's a good question. Let's see if I can. Augusta County, Virginia, has seen Stonewall Jackson's victorious battles in the valley. They've contributed men to every major battle in the east. They've seen enormous casualties come back to them. Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, is the northern place most vulnerable to Confederate raids. And they had been raided the year before. And in 1863, Robert E. Lee knows that if he goes on the other side of the Blue Ridge Mountains from where the United States Army is stationed, that he can move northward in the valley undetected. And so he's going to go right into this remarkably wealthy area of South Central Pennsylvania. The people in Chambersburg, a town of about 8,000, know that they are completely at the mercy of the Confederate Army. And sure enough, they one day see enslaved people race into their towns on horseback or on on wagons because they know the confederates are coming northward in the valley so that was their sign that was, that their, was their sign super- and the enslaved people are fleeing because they know if the confederates catch them they will drag them back into slavery so they're they're looking for refuge in the north and then they watch tens of
1: thousands of confederate soldiers marching wow. in Ed, if you'd open your book to page 23, I'd like you to read a passage for us.
0: The armies of the Confederacy and the United States fought on a landscape that stretched for hundreds of miles from the places they clashed in battle. The war was a vast, living web radiating from the armies and the capitals, constantly in motion, woven of railroads and rivers, muddy roads and narrow trails, marching armies and bleak hospitals. Civilians lived within that web of war as well, Every family that sent a man to the army felt the connections, knew the distances, understood how quickly death or disease could travel from a battlefield to a lonely homestead. Every mother, wife, and sister waited for letters of reassurance to reach them from some distant place, fearing letters that brought news of death, disease, or disfigurement. Every family that saw its barns and fields emptied or its taxes mount felt the voracious hunger of armies. Everyone who read a newspaper in Civil War America glimpsed the reach and constant spinning of the web, the invisible strands reaching into every corner of the continent and across oceans. Every enslaved person could feel the trembling of the web, the possibility and threat it promised.
1: That's very moving, Ed. Why did you choose web as your metaphor? Yeah, it's
0: because as I read the letters and diaries and memoirs and all this, I could see that people who were nowhere near the battle could still feel it. Uh-huh. And I could also see that its consequences stretched so far from the places that we have sort of walled off and labeled as the battlefield. America was a battlefield. Let's imagine a map of what the aftermath of Gettysburg looked like. What if we mapped all the communities in the north and the south that lost men? at Gettysburg. You would see a web even larger than the one I just described. So I'd be honest too and say that I see history as a series of connections across time, but across space, and across different categories of people, which we so often divide up. So I was trying to suggest that everything's connected to everything else, which is my very
1: deep philosophy of history. I get that, but I'd be curious to hear what the actual connective tissues in this web Uh were. I think our listeners might learn quite a bit about 19th century life. If you just describe what connected this web. Yeah, they're spun up many different
0: kinds of materials, Brian. They're things as concrete and mundane as the tracks left by thousands of cattle and hogs, all the way up to the telegraph that's sending news as it's breaking hour to hour out into the hinterlands. And for me, Brian, as a historian, most personally, the only way that I can touch the web is through the words that people have left. And the the bounty of letters and diaries that we were able to discover is remarkable. And two remarkable diaries from the Northern County uh, are of Rachel and Samuel Cormany, Rachel at home with her baby Cora in Chambersburg, recording what it's like to be on the home front. Samuel with the cavalry in the United States Army down in Virginia, writing eloquently about what it's like to be actually in the Army every day. And they're both very appealing
1: people. So they are keeping these diaries, and they're remarkably powerful. The American Civil War Museum in Richmond dramatized portions of The Thin Light of Freedom. Here's an actor reading Rachel Cormany's diary. I came to witness the rebel army hunting the colored contrabands and rounding them up, driving them off by droves. Oh, it grated my heart to witness such cruel deeds. I saw no men amongst the contrabands, only women and children. They even rounded up some of the colored people who were raised here and drove them off as if they were cattle. I saw one poor woman Begging with her driver for mercy for her children. The only sympathy she received was a rough march along, at which she quickened her pace. And her tears. I could only think of my own Cora. How my heart would surely break to see her suffer so. What can we make of something like that today, Ed? How do we even put that in context? You know, one thing that
0: reminds us is that these people saw what was happening around them. So seeing through Rachel's eyes makes that immediate and powerful to us. And I think that's an important thing. Sometimes we imagine that the people of the past were simpler than we were. Words like Rachel's remind us that the past was just as powerful
1: and real and complicated as things are today. In some ways, more so. How common was that? particular kind of experience. How many Northerners actually observed this firsthand? Well, yeah, Brian, it was
0: very common among Northern soldiers in particular. We need to remember that the North at this time is over 95% white. Many people had never, never seen slavery, and many Northerners had never even seen Black people, right? And now they're going into a war where Black people are playing a central role. White Northerners knew about slavery through minstrel shows, Novels like Uncle Tom's Cabin, speeches, and they could be outraged by it, by what they knew, but they had not actually seen slavery with their own eyes. When United States soldiers go into Virginia or Tennessee or Mississippi and they see what slavery looks like firsthand, they're outraged, but they're also emboldened when they see the intelligence, the skill, the determination of enslaved people to make themselves free. So slavery becomes central in the war because the white north grows to understand that black people want and deserve to be free. But in all honesty, one reason I chose Franklin County is that it sees the war through eyes of people
1: like women on the home front in ways that are unusual. What's up with this? 1863 to 1870, I don't think I've ever read a book about the Civil War with that particular set of dates. In order to understand the
0: course of emancipation, we needed to have more of the fire and fury and death of the war in it. And in order to understand why the Civil War actually mattered, you need to understand its consequences, which took years to play out. So to go from 1863, when Lincoln has declared that emancipation is a purpose of the war, that black men will fight for the survival of the United States, all the way through the chaos of the last two years of the war, all the way through the 13th Amendment to end slavery, the 14th Amendment to give due process and full citizenship to everybody born in this country, to the 15th Amendment, which guarantees the right to vote. It's the arc all the way from 1859, when people could not imagine anything like the war, to only 11 years later, the most fundamental change in American history has unfolded.
1: Well, we have a listener who has written in. He knew that We were going to be talking about this, and his name is Larry Broadwater. And Larry writes, I'd love to learn more about the evolution of Lincoln and his views of race and slavery. That's a good question, Larry. And I'd say it's been the focus
0: of a lot of scholarship over the last 10 years. And, in fact, I would say in the eyes of many historians, the story of the Civil War is the story of Lincoln's broadening and deepening understanding of slavery and the necessity for its abolition. And I'm a big Lincoln fan, and I think that is true. And the North would not have advanced as it did without his leadership. But I'm interested in a harder question. How did the white Northern electorate who did not have the moral capacity of Abraham Lincoln, by and large, and who had a great vested interest in protecting their partisan identities, how could they be persuaded to sacrifice their sons to fight longer for an expanded war aim of bringing slavery to an end? Now, the Northern Democrats, who are almost half of white Northern men, never embraced that They say we should bring the war to an end as soon as possible, and if that involves compromising with the rebels about slavery, so be it. You've had enough of my sons. White Republicans, including Lincoln, come to believe that unless the war drives slavery to an end, the sacrifices that have been made are a waste. So people have looked back at Lincoln and the record on him is his market. We don't have a clear record of what he was thinking in all these different times and we do know things that that complicate the story. As in 1864 he's still talking about colonization of shipping freed black people out of the country, right? And he says that to black ministers who are visiting him, right? So people look at that and say he's a hypocrite. Right? Other people look at him and say but look what he's doing. And he's the one who's behind the Emancipation Proclamation and helping to create the United States colored troops. He is growing. But I think that equating Abraham Lincoln with the Northern cause doesn't do justice to what he was up against. When you find that half of white Northern men won't vote for him, even in the great defining election of 1864, that he's able to persuade almost no Northern Democrats who didn't vote for him before to change their minds and vote for him, then we get some sense of the great accomplishment as a politician that he was able to bring about. I think it's also important to remember that the Republican Party shows remarkable growth over the course of the war. At the beginning, they're not speaking so much in terms of sympathy for black people as they are of anger against white southerners right over the course of the war however you start to see them growing more attuned to the humanity of the people in slavery and more determined to launch this great experiment of reconstruction and more determined to drive the war to a conclusion in which slavery is abolished forever so it's a good question larry Uh, i think abraham lincoln is woven into the changing and i will even say improving
1: attitudes of at least half the white North over the course of the war. Okay, I understand that general arc, but how did he actually accomplish that?
0: So, Brian, we're often thinking of Lincoln as living on another plane of morality and philosophy.
1: but not to mention Mount Rushmore. Yeah,
0: exactly. But it's just politics and and battles that do this. Uh, Lincoln knows that there is no legal way for him to abolish slavery other than just to proclaim it as president because the Constitution protects it. That means he can't get rid of it in areas that are still in the United States. Only the states that are in rebellion against the United <laughs> States can have slavery destroyed. So some people look back and think, the, the hypocrite? And remind our listeners where there is slavery in the United yeah, States. Well, so yeah, certainly in Kentucky uh-huh. and Maryland, two critical Pretty states. important states yeah, for very the war. very important, right? Then he has to persuade Northerners to vote for this expanded vision In the election of fall of 1864, right? The other thing that he does that he knows that he needs to do to win the war is to allow African-American men, including those who had been in slavery only recently, to fight for the United States. Why is that? The United States needs the men, even though there are huge numbers of men in the North, not enough. So by tapping the formerly enslaved population and the idealism and bravery of black men in the North who want to fight to end slavery, he's able to put 200,000 men, more than all the men at Gettysburg on both sides combined, into the
1: army. What about back on those southern plantations? Did the proclamation actually serve as a catalyst? for slaves leaving where there were not Union troops, or it only mattered where there were Union troops? Yeah, no Union troops. There's no freedom. And that's the other thing we need to remember. That's the reason I said
0: politics and armies. Lincoln knows that the only way slavery is going to be destroyed is by force of arms. And here's a a sobering thought. Even with the Emancipation Proclamation and even with Union troops overrunning the South— three million enslaved people never come within reach of the United States armies by the end of the war. Wow! Right, So I think that people underestimate how hard it was to destroy slavery. Uh, and if you just think about, it, if you're an enslaved person, say you're an 18-year-old woman with a baby, you hear the Yankees are 10 miles away, but to risk getting to them You're risking your life and everything else. So it's better to see the Yankees actually come onto your farm or plantation, come down the road of your town. But then white Southerners can't believe the speed with
1: which enslaved people go to the northern side and declare themselves free. Ed, I've heard you say many times, maybe some of our listeners have heard this, that when the war started, people thought it was going to be one battle. Why did the war last so long?
0: Turns out that Americans are really good at war. The amount and rapidity of mobilization for this war is astounding. The United States had basically no military tradition before the war. And so all these are volunteer armies until into the, the war. the leadership of it are often barely trained. They've just been militia leaders or local lawyers or politicians. So that makes us good at war? Well, that's even with those disadvantages, ironically, the way that they were able to scale up is remarkable. So there's two different accomplishments. One, the South has its size on its advantage. It's the size of continental Europe. They believe that, as in the American colonies at the time of the revolution, which was not that far before this— They just have to absorb the blows of the much numerically superior North. That they will use the landscape and being occupied by friends and knowing where all the roads and rivers are to defeat the Yankees. The Yankees have vast industrial capacity that's just now being tapped. They can make so much more stuff than anybody imagined possible and transport it to these new railroads and build ships and things. So as it turns out, the two are balanced almost exactly long enough for the war to last as long as it can. And by doing so, to destroy slavery as thoroughly as it could be destroyed. But that was a surprise to both sides. Is that correct? Battle after battle, everybody says, okay, that does it, it. right? Right. Now we're done. One of the things you often hear people say is that Gettysburg is the turning point in the war. But here's what we need to remember. As many men die after Gettysburg as die before. If it's the turning point, they don't know it. And it's certainly not told in the death tolls. So I think that we need to understand that the war is not over until... It's over. I mean, even into the winter of 1864 when the Confederates are starving in the trenches, they still believe that somehow they're going to win. Now, what does win mean? They don't think they're going to surge out of there and take Washington, D.C. and New York City. They think that they are going to hold on long enough for the large proportion of white Northerners who are half-hearted about ending slavery anyway and who feel they've given enough anyway and who are worried about the expansion of the federal government anyway—
1: to give up. Let's take a call from a listener. Hi, my name is Mary Beth Donnelly, and I'm a veteran history teacher in uh, Northern Virginia, and I wanted to ask Professor Ayers what he believes is the most common misconception or myth or mistake that his students come to college with. I guess specifically what I'm asking is What do you feel we get right about the emancipationist narrative that's taught in elementary-secondary schools? And what do we get wrong? What can we do better? Thank you very much for taking my question, and I look forward to reading your book.
0: Thanks a lot, Mary Beth. As it turns out, the, the two questions are really one. What's the fundamental misconception Americans in general have is that the war was bound to turn out as it did? that this country was bound to reckon with its great sin of slavery and that the war was going to come sometime and it was going to eventuate in northern victory. The irony of that is, is it lets everybody off the hook. It lets the white South believe that it was just playing the role of the archaic, the old That would be sloughed off by the new nation. And it left the white North and all of us who have sort of (laughs) traded on on its victory to believe that this great good was going to naturally win. One of the things that I really believe that we would do better to remember is how close a call this was, how painfully won it was, how much it left unwon and to be a little bit less satisfied with our civil war than we are. By knowing how it turns out, we flatten everything that happens up to the end. So I've talked with teachers before about the best way to talk about this remarkably complicated thing, which, of course, I've written a thousand pages about, so I think it's (laughs) very complicated. But I do believe that if we would tell it as a story whose end we don't know, we can make it comprehensible. Anybody who's read Harry Potter knows (laughs) that people change over the course of a story, that people discover capacities for good and evil within themselves and within others, that things almost never end the way that they begin. I think I would try to explain to people, let's forget the outcome and look at it day by day. And what could people know? When you do that, You find yourself freed from what turns out to be a profoundly limiting belief that the war was bound to turn out the way that it did and that slavery was bound to be destroyed. It was not. Slavery could have lived for generations more. And the Confederacy could have won and been an independent nation in the world
1: with perpetual bondage. Ed, we've got a caller from Manhattan. That's Ah. that fancy place in New York City. Yeah. You know that laugh. I recognize that <laughs> laugh. It's Joanne calling in. Funny talking to you here.
0: Well, you better not have a hard question for me, That's all I can say. No,
1: no. It's a softball question that I'm really curious about. All right. About. You said that you want to show events in what you call forward motion as they were lived, rather than reassembling them on some kind of a path to the present. And I love right. that observation. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about
0: how looking at things in forward motion changed the way that you understand the
1: Civil
0: War? Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, I don't really have many articles of faith in history, but this is one of them in this case. You may have heard me quote my mother on this. I found it always effective. When I told her I was going to graduate school, she was a fifth-grade teacher for 30 years. And she said, well, okay, honey, but why? We already know what happened. <laughs> And I think that the fact that we already know what happened in the Civil War, it is so hard not to go back and read the ending into the beginning. It's so hard not to go back, actually, to your period, Joanne. As you know, there are historians who do that, who believe that the Civil War actually begins with the Constitution and the Revolution. And without denying the deep, fundamental cause of slavery— to understand how it is that history unfolds in real time as a result of decision and mistake and unforeseen coincidence is both humbling and encouraging in some ways, that we're, we don't live on a predetermined path towards something. Uh, it means we have to work hard for any accomplishment we get.
1: Okay, so Ed, what does that perspective then tell us about the present?
0: I'll be honest, not every historian likes that perspective. People have said to me, hindsight is the major thing that we have, Ed. Why would you want to give that away? And that's a, a reasonable point. If, if, if Knowing how the story turns out allows you to go back and see patterns that lead to the present. So it's not that I believe this dogmatically, and that's why I'm so glad to have you reinforce my faith in it, Joanne. But I think for the present, it allows us to be Really aware of the threats that surround us, of how quickly Mm -hmm. things can turn bad, but also to realize that there are reservoirs of people like, in my story, the abolitionists Mm -hmm. or of Republicans who end up being better at the end of the story than they were at the beginning, which you just don't see happen in history very much, right? Oh, and to see the capacities among the freed people themselves to become political actors right? All those things are inherent capacities that people at the time might not have seen. I believe that there are capacities in our own time that we will Mm. be tapping in coming years. I take hope from looking back and saying, these people somehow managed to end this vast system of slavery and embark upon this great experiment in democracy. Maybe there are exciting things in our near future as well that we can't Mm. foresee right now.
1: Mm. So the human factor kind of lets us put our feet on the ground in our own time, too. Yeah,
0: exactly. People actually can move history.
1: So, Joanne, I know you have history to make, and we'll (laughs) say goodbye and let you go out and make it. Thanks for calling, Joanne. Thanks for calling. (laughs) Okay. And I just want to underscore something else I learned from you, Ed, which is that this notion that the North was progress because it was industrialized and the South was kind of this old, archaic, thing bound to fade away is, is another one of the myths of the literature on the Civil War.
0: Yeah, I think it's the most widely held belief is that if you just ask, and people think that's a polite thing to say, yeah, it's the industrial north and the agrarian south, but why in the world would an industrial north not want an agrarian south that was producing the great raw material that was driving it? So there's no logic to it, but we keep repeating it over and over again because it's very convenient. And ironically, it has the effect of displacing slavery. It's not industry versus agrarian.
1: It's free versus slave. That's what the Civil War is about. And some of that slavery could have been adapted for industrial purposes. Well, not only could have been. It was
0: that it was producing the most advanced technology in the world at the time, locomotives, the trains that allowed the South to secede were actually built in part by enslaved men. Slavery turns out to be a highly adaptable system that would be great for mining gold in California, for mm-hmm. example. It would also flourish well if we annexed Cuba, which we would like to do, and maybe Central America. So we need to get rid of these these polarities and to understand that the war, in fact, is, well,
1: a great web that was everything was connected to everything else. After Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation and... African Americans, if they can get to those Union troops, are emancipated. What did it look like, Ed? You know,
0: as grateful as I am for all the people who left me these little shards of information, I so wish that there was, I could talk with people. And we see these heartbreaking just glimpses of what emancipation looked like, the sheer joy and exultation, but also. When freedom exists, it means the possibility maybe of putting your family back together to exists. Now, you talked about this dramatization that they, the American yeah. Civil War Museum put together. There's a remarkable actress who took these glimpses of what it would have been like that we have through official records or white people describing it and wove it into a dramatization of what that moment could have looked like to an enslaved woman. And so I'd like for you to hear the artistry with which she wove together these primary sources, these real words, into a living portrait.
1: <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's my name. <laughs> All I got, is celebrating and dreaming and marrying and learning, don't mean I am truly free. I'll be truly free when I find my own family isn't that what you would do? Two of my daughters, they come back. One of them's married, has two children. I'm a grandma now. The one I'm looking for is my son. That's the one that Master took when he was five years old and, and, and took him away because he paid some gambling debts he had. It's going to be real hard to find him.
0: And we have to picture that moment happening over hundreds and hundreds of times. And, you know, some of the most poignant moments in the story for me are boring government records. There's one that I love, the Freedmen's— I've never met a boring government (laughs) record. (laughs) I I recognize that's a contradiction in terms for you. But think about this. The Freedmen's Bureau keeps a a register of cohabitation. It is men and women coming to declare that their marriages, which they've often had for decades— are legal in the eyes of the Commonwealth of Virginia. They'd always believed themselves married in the eyes of God, but they knew that they could be sold apart at any moment, and they had often seen their children sold away, as Betsy in the Dramatization just told us. But by coming forward and declaring, and this happened 600 times in Augusta County alone, they are formalizing something they had managed to sustain in the face of every opposition— And then you read other accounts of what it's like to have these missionaries from the North come down and teach young Black children how to read, and also older Black women and men how to read. And the longing for knowledge that you see in these quotations is so powerful. But we also need to remember that Reconstruction was about politics. And what Reconstruction was is the extension of the fundamental rights of being an
1: American to people who had been held in slavery. Give me a sense of what the politics of Reconstruction actually looked like on the ground. So picture this scene. It's Stanton, Virginia, 1867.
0: Slavery's been gone for two years. Reconstruction is spinning up because the North has determined that the white South is never going to grant the rights to Black people unless they are forced to. And Black men are now able to run for office and to vote for men running for office. And at this courthouse, hundreds of black men and white men come together. It begins, as we might expect, with a former Confederate general, a guy who had gone to Harvard, lecturing the black men on the duties of citizenship and how they should trust their best friends, their good friends, the white Southerners. And then the crowd calls for black men to stand up and speak for themselves. Wow! And one of them stands up and says... Well, I'm glad the white people want to be our friends now. I'm not sure why it took them so long to decide (laughs) that they were. And another one says, well, these are very beautiful figures that the general just spun. But let me tell you about the story of the boy and the frogs. Frogs are in a pond, and boys come and skip rocks across the top of the water for their own amusement. And the rocks are killing the frogs. And one of the old frogs stands up and says, what is sport to you is death to us. So, it's a way for the black people to say, you guys are playing around here with politics. Yeah. These are our lives. Ironically, this pretends two things. One, it pretends that black men are not going to back down, that despite all the violence and intimidation and threats of losing your job that they're facing, that they are going to, as they put it, defend our rights as Americans. It also pretends that the white South is not going to permit that that they are more threatened by black eloquence and accomplishment and achievement and bravery than they are by black failure. And so for the next 25 years, there's going to be a struggle for black people to not lose what they've won in Reconstruction and white Southerners not to allow them to seize what they have won. And so as a result, in 1901, Virginia passes a new constitution that wipes out all the gains that black people had made during Reconstruction. But it takes that long for the white South to be able to smother black aspiration. And what happened in Virginia
1: happened in every other southern state. We're going to take a call from a listener. Uh, The voice may be familiar to some of you. Hello, hello. This is Nathan calling in from Baltimore. (laughs) Uh, Hey, Nathan. Hey, hey. Nathan, do you have a question for us? I certainly do. So Ed, first thing I gotta say is, is I gotta I gotta ask you. You seem to be ready to blow people's minds with the idea that there are such things as Southern Unionists and that there are such things as Democrats in the North who might not necessarily be fans of Abraham Lincoln. The picture of the country is not just one of South versus North, but where even within those regions, there is dissension, there is diversity, and there are people who are on all sides of the political issue. And so I got to ask you, what are you trying to teach us about the Civil War, what we usually think is a pretty cut and dry struggle?
0: That's all the time we have for today. Thank you very (laughs) much, Nathan. Well, you know, I would say this. I didn't set out to do that. This is just what the people of the time told me. And I think to show that there were people on all sides who were resisting what now seems the inevitable course of history is worth remembering. Here's the thing I think it's worth remembering, too. Far worse things than we can imagine can happen in history, as in a war that kills more men than all the wars of the 20th century combined when it comes to Americans— And things better than we can imagine. The end of this vast system of slavery in just a few years can also happen. So my answer to your question is this, Nathan. If we think of this as a foreshadowing of our own time in any way, it suggests that all voices matter and that you can't tell who's going to win (laughs) these things and that you never want to give up. Sometimes greater things than you can imagine come to pass. Mm,
1: That's true. Thanks a lot, Nathan. Great to hear from you, Nathan. I'll be a stranger. All right. Bye. Ed, you wrote this book while you were serving as co-host of our podcast. Did you actually learn anything about writing history from trying to translate history for our listeners? I think that whether you're working... On the immediate scale of a
0: weekly podcast or over the extended scale of a book that takes years to write, the purpose, the goal, is the same. How do you make sense of the past without oversimplifying the past? How do you find the patterns without denying all the humanity and the complexity within those patterns?
1: Last question, I promise. What made you become a Civil War historian in the first place?
0: It's because I find, first of all, this is the time when we find the most voices in American history. There are more people talking in ways that we can recover than any other period. We can capture some of the drama of everyday life of people who are otherwise silenced in history. And that's how I got interested in history in the first place. I came to the Civil War because that was the place I knew I could hear them. It's also the case that it's only in trial that you really find what a people is really made of by looking at the hardest trial of america we can see the idealism the thin light of freedom that has still shone through it at the same time you can see what we can do to each other
1: i think both those things are worth remembering ed air's new book is called the thin light of freedom the civil war and emancipation in the heart of america hey listeners We wanted to correct some errors on a recent episode. The first is from our Close Encounters episode. Ken Arnold was in fact flying a Call Air A2, not a Cessna plane. A listener also felt that the conversation implied that people were building bomb shelters in the late 1940s. To clarify, bomb shelters did not become a thing in America until the 1950s. We also made an error in our episode on other people's wars. A listener pointed out that we used England to mean the United Kingdom. Volunteers from across the U.K. fought with the International Brigade in the Spanish Civil War. That's going to do it for today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about American history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. And if you like the show, feel free to review it in Apple Podcasts. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger.
0: This episode of Backstory was produced by Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Robin Blue, Emma Gregg, Anjali Bishash, Sequoia Carrillo, Courtney Spania, and Aaron Teeling. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. And a very special and personal thanks to actors Stephanie Hasselbacher, Sheila Arnold Jones, Michael Impson, and Marvin Alonzo Greer. They performed a dramatization of The Thin Light of Freedom, co-sponsored by the Black History Museum and the American Civil War Museum in Richmond last month.
1: Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. We're a proud member of the Panoply Podcast Network. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations.
0: Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.